Good morning. Good morning. Open your Bibles, Daniel chapter 4. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor of Village Church. Most weeks I get to open up God's Word, so today we're going to end the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. And uh, I'm wondering, how many of you guys remember the book's Choose Your Own Adventure? Maybe your kids or you read them. Anybody raise your hand? Love Choose Your Own Adventure. The reason I love them is because you, you were in control. The entire book was written so that it was as if you were thinking. You got to get to certain points, like pages in, and you could be like, no, I want this kind of outcome. And so you'd go to a certain page in the book and it would ultimately take you in all these different directions. And if you didn't like the way the book ended, you know what you got to do? Go back and go to a different route and choose a different ending. So I want to I wanna read to you. The back of one of these Choose Your Own Adventure books, I want you to imagine elementary school Michael going into a bookstore with my mom and reading this. The first time I read the back of one of these, I was done. I would read every Choose Your Own Adventure. Here's what it says. Beware and warning. This book is different from other books. You and you alone are in charge of what happens in this story. There are dangers, choices, adventures, and consequences, but you must use all your numerous talents, thank you, and much of your enormous intelligence, yes, the wrong decision could end in disaster, even death. But don't despair. At any time, you can go back and make another choice, alter the path of your story, and change its result. Now enter the mysterious and beautiful world of Atlantis. You may become famous. You might decide never to return to the earth world above, or you may not get a chance to make that decision. Whatever happens, good luck. I was a kid. I read that, and I'm like, I want every single Choose Your Adventure book. And I I love this. The authors understood that in every single decision, there are hinge points, and whatever decision you decide, when you follow that out, it has massive ramifications for the rest of your life. One turn can change the entire outcome of a story. Well, in Scripture, the Bible teaches that every single person, you're going to hit a hinge point. You're going to hit this crossroad, and you are going to be given the opportunity to make one of two decisions. And the two decisions uh, that Scripture would articulate, I'm going to say it like this. You either choose pride or you choose humility. Pride is very simply thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Humility is thinking about yourself rightly or accurately. The book of James, chapter four, verse six. James says this, God opposes the proud. You don't sound very excited about that, all right? But God gives grace to the humble. And so this is actually a decision point. This is a crossroad. And each one of these decisions have necessary and predetermined outcomes. If you walk down the the path of pride, here's what you're going to get. You are going to get the opposing hand of God. Now you may have worldly success, but here's what you're going to find, that there are going to be things that you would like to do and God is going to stick out his hand in opposition. On the other hand, if you walk in humility, what gets poured out on you? God's Grace, yes, God's grace. Very good, you're all listening. So God's grace gets poured out. Pop quiz, if you had to choose between the opposing hand of God or the gracious hand of God, which do you guys pick? The grace, uh, thank you very much. Uh, This brings us to chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's at a crossroads. We've seen in chapters two and chapter three that God is pursuing him. But Nebuchadnezzar is dense as a doornail. He is filled with more pride than anybody probably in this room. And he is continually choosing to walk down the path of pride. And this guy is going to choose or reap what what he sows. 
And so Daniel chapter 4, we're, historians will tell us, we think Daniel is around 50 years old, which means Nebuchadnezzar is a bit older. So if you read Daniel chapter 2, 3, and 4, you may feel like these stories all happen on top of each other, but there's quite a bit of distance between all these stories. And so chapter um, 4, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 4, point number 1 in your notes, the great tree. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Life is good. I want you to hear me. If God is going to get Nebuchadnezzar to heaven, it's going to be more difficult than getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Like this, this right here, this, this scenario, there is no one harder to save than the person who is prosperous and at ease and has no need of God whatsoever. But I want to just, I want to give you a little warning. Uh, there is one way over and over and over and over again that God humbles the rich and at ease who reject him. Here's the word. Look for it. Think about the person in your life who has no need of God. This is the one thing that God will do to get their attention and begin the process of humbling them. Distress. Watch it. It might be intellectual distress, relational distress with their kids, their wife. Things will start getting concerning and alarming. And this is what we're going to watch. God could have brought Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in so many different ways, but he's going to start with this. When you see somebody who does not need God and distress of any kind comes into their life, beware. This is when you start praying because these are the moments where God begins to humble those who are prosperous and at ease who have rejected him. Uh, riches and and ease are like spiritual earplugs. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are rich and at ease, which is many of us in this room, actually, whether you compare yourself to someone else, you are rich and at ease compared to the majority of the world right now. Um, They're like spiritual earplugs. And if this category fits you, here's what you have to understand. Your heart is going to be numb to the voice of God because of riches and ease in your life. So what you have to do and what I have to do is wake up every single day, take out the earplugs, we make a decision and say, God, make me sensitive to your voice because the wealth and the ease and the prosperity of my life easily cause self-reliance. God, every day, would you help me wake up and would you remind me that everything I am and have today is because you have graciously and sovereignly allotted it to me in this time, in this place, in my life. God, when I go throughout the day and I do things that are successful or make me more money or accrue more stuff for me, God, would you remind me that every single thing I do that is successful comes because of your gracious and sovereign hand to me. And then the next day you get up again and you wake up and there are earplugs in your ear numbing your voice to the Holy Spirit and you pull them out and you get on your face and you say, God, there's too much at stake for me today to rely on myself? Would you humble me? Would you remind me? You are in control of everything I am today. Like this is the spiritual discipline of Americans, by the way, who have any sense of ease or prosperity. If that's you, you have to understand that this country numbs your voice to the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't need to. You can wake up every day and take out these earplugs. Well, we get to verse five. Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw a dream and it made me afraid. Distress. As I lay In bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, distress. So what do insecure, overcompensating leaders do when they're troubled? They make a decree. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. Now I want everybody here that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. These are all people on his payroll. These people live opulent lives. Their whole existence was to be on call so that they could interpret the dream of the king. He says, I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So here's just a little question for you. If you remember the last couple of weeks, um, you remember when uh, he went to these people and said, hey, if you're talking with the gods, you should not just know the interpretation, but you should actually tell me, you should be able to tell me the dream, right? None of them can do it because they're all frauds. Every, they're all frauds. They're all fakes, but he hasn't learned his lesson yet, right? He defaults. And so he calls them in and go figure all the frauds cannot give him the interpretation of the dream he has because this dream came from Yahweh. And Yahweh did not permit these people to have access to the interpretation because he was up to something bigger and better. And then verse eight, it says, at last, why he's last and not first is beyond me. But what does this show you about Nebuchadnezzar's state? He's defaulting 10 steps forward, nine steps back, 10 steps forward, nine steps back. This is his story. At last, Daniel came in before me whose name was Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy, what's the word? Gods. And I told him the dream, saying, yeah, pause, okay? If Nebuchadnezzar is going to get saved, he has to repent of his pagan polytheism. He must become a monotheist, meaning he believes in one God and he submits his life under the authority of that one God. And I would even contend that I think he likely is going to have to uh, believe that no other gods exist. They are all demons masquerading or they're the manufacturing ideas of people's minds to make them feel better and make sense of reality. Uh, if he's really going to get saved, he has to reject pagan polytheism. Is he there yet? What's the answer? No, he's not there yet. And so we get to verse nine. He says, oh, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy, what's the word? Gods. The author is wanting you to know that in this moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he was still a pagan polytheist. He did not trust in God yet. That the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Duh. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. I found this picture. I thought it was beautiful. And imagine this tree that grows up out of Babylon and this is what he sees. And I imagine at first, he looks at the tree in the dream and he says, I really hope I'm the tree. Enormous, grand, glorious, majestic, giving shade and provision for all of the earth. And so it goes on and says in verse 11, the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And this is where the dream gets alarming. He says this, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay and behead and behold, a watcher, a holy one came down from heaven there's some context here that you have to understand because in every major religion, um, in fact, if you, most religions, have um, as a part of their mythology a huge or central tree. In Christianity, it's called the tree of life. 
And so just like in the same way that most religions have a flood story. They have a story of some local or global flood that was a catastrophe in the entire world. And many people will look at this and say, oh, look, Judaism just stole from other, these other myths. And as Christians, we would say, um, actually, no, Judaism, um, it, what actually happened is there was a real tree and there was a real flood and every other nationality and religion is stealing from the original events and mythology grows around them. And the further away they get from the actual events without written history, the more crazy and discombobulated they get. And so what we believe is that Moses wrote down what happened in the early time with the flood and the tree of life, etc., and that what we have preserved in writing, not just oral tradition from the earliest of times, is an accurate account of how the world was made. So now it's interesting, they have a tree which is said to be this um, beautiful tree, it's like a god, and then what would surround the tree would be the Babylonian spiritual beings called the Watchers. What's interesting is, 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 is Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree, he's filtering it through his polytheistic pagan worldview, what he might have, what were maybe objectively angels, he's able to articulate as watchers. And so here's what we find, it goes on. And uh, I wanna show you actually this um, uh, picture. Um, these are redwood trees. This is from about uh, the late 1800s. And uh, this tree is 30 feet in diameter. Just, I want you to catch this for a moment, okay? You can see how big it is wide there. But um, this tree was, uh, and they can grow to be as tall as 370 feet, okay? Pro a football field is about 300 feet. So take a football field, put it straight, add 70 feet. So this tree took them about three weeks to chop down. Like this was a formidable opponent. Okay, and here's what God's trying, trying to say to Nebuchadnezzar so far in the dream. Your tree is so big that it fills the entire earth and no amount of lumberjacks are gonna be able to chop this sucker down because your pride is so big, big that it is going to take a divine lumberjack and intervention to chop this tree down to size because that's how narcissistic, arrogant, and prideful you really are. And God is giving him a dream and he's showing him this and he's basically showing him, this is a picture of what your pride looks like. In verse 14, here's what he says. Uh, the watcher proclaims aloud, and here's what he says. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. You can imagine in this moment, if you are Nebuchadnezzar, what do you feel? Distress. Do you mean the gods sending the watchers, the holy ones around the sacred tree are telling me that I am the problem and that me, my tree needs to be cut down? That's exactly what he's saying. He goes on in verse 14 and says, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its root in the earth bound. What is a stump good for? Sitting on. <laughs> That's about it. That's it. And God is going to sit on him and he's basically going to make him say, uncle, say uncle, say uncle for a long time. And Nebuchadnezzar, because his pride is so thick, it's going to take a long time for this guy to turn around. Bound it with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. And the reason you would bind this is that it would prevent any future growth. So basically what God is going to do, and you're going to see this play out, is that God's going to chop the tree down and he's going to prevent it from growing until Nebuchadnezzar does what God wants him to do. He says, let him be wet, verse 15, with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. That's seven years. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. Isn't that great? God has held a trial 
over Nebuchadnezzar's pride, found him guilty, and he's declared that this is done. You are guilty. Your sentence now is the following. The decision is by the word of the holy ones. And I want you to hear this. Why would God ever publicly humiliate and shame a human being like this? Here's why. To the end, for this reason, that you, that the living may know that the most high rules. Like this is what God wants. And so if your pride stands between you and knowing, not just like in your head, but truly knowing in your soul that the king of the world and your life and your possessions is Yahweh, is God, then he will do whatever it takes to get you to that point. And the more prideful you are, the more distressful typically your humbling has to be. And we're going to see because this guy is the pinnacle of pride. His distress is over the top. To the end, that the living may know the most high rules. Interesting, singular, as Daniel and the watchers articulate about the nature and character of God, they keep articulating a monotheistic sovereign God rather than a polytheistic one of many gods. That you may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he wills, and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom not able to make known to me its interpretation. But you, you're able. Why? For the spirit of the holy gods. Like how frustrated must Daniel be in this moment? Okay, how many times do I have to tell you? There's not many gods. There's one God. He's not one who's like over the other gods. He's the only God. All the other gods, they don't exist. They're rock and stone and imagination. This is the one true God. But this is deep in his soul. This is his heart culture. Heart cultures don't dis dismantle easily. Point number two, the greater lumberjack. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, he was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. Distress. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Okay, well, Belteshazzar, you were alarmed. You were distressed. So why is that okay? But I can't be alarmed and distressed. And then Belteshazzar answered and he said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and it's interpretation for your enemies. Here's what Daniel knows. Daniel knows the tree is Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knows God's gonna chop down this tree, but Daniel also knows that the dream is given as a warning. Nebuchadnezzar, choose your own adventure. Choose your own path. This is your option. You walk down pride, you're gonna get chopped down, but there is an out, okay? I, I, nobody in this room probably believes more in the sovereignty of God over every single act on this planet more than me. But the sovereignty of God does not negate my full and 100% responsibility for every single decision that I make. I have an option to choose pride or to choose humility in this moment and every moment. This is from God for me as a follower of Jesus Christ. I cannot go to heaven and wag my finger at him and say, why did you make me do this? If you were really in control, you would have stopped this decision. I will stand accountable for God for my decisions, period. And Nebuchadnezzar is given an opportunity. He is given a very real option. Choose pride, get chopped down by the divine lumberjack, choose humility, and this is the direction that you can go. The tree, verse 20, you saw, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. I imagine at this point, Nebuchadnezzar's like, carry on. 
carry on. Yes, 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 I love you. Very true, very true. Verse 24, this is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the most high. This actually transcends the watchers. This comes from above the angels. And this has come upon my lord, the king. You shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You should be wet with the, with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time, seven years shall pass over you. Why? Till you know the most high rules. Here's what he's saying. Until you reject your polytheism, you come to a monotheism, and you begin to think rightly about yourself, that you are a humble servant of Yahweh, you have not built this great empire by your own awesomeness. It has been granted to you and favor has been granted to you by God and God alone. And in a moment, Nebuchadnezzar, remember I can take it from you just like that. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon the Lord my King till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know heaven rules. You will be bound until you admit the sovereign God of this universe is king and ruler. What is the outcome that God wants from Nebuchadnezzar? Worship, true heart, humble worship of the one true and only real God. Verse 27, Daniel is very clear. This is not necessary. Have you ever watched people in your life filled with pride, and you're thinking to yourself, you, you literally don't need to make this decision. Like there is another path. You have self-control. You have the ability to actually make another decision. And don't you just want to shake some people? And you're like, this literally, if you continue down this path, this path it will not end well for you. He says, therefore, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. Now is the time. Choose your own adventure. Choose your path. This is the hinge point. This is the crossroads. By practicing righteousness and your iniquities, by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. It's interesting in this moment that for Nebuchadnezzar, true repentance and humility is going to be focused on showing mercy to the oppressed. Who is oppressed in Babylon? Almost everybody. Like his entire leadership network and framework and perspective has been around prideful oppression, right? And now this, this is it. If you're gonna really humble yourself, I expect something public and all of the oppressed you will now serve and you will bring mercy to them in the name of Yahweh. That's a tall order, isn't it? One of the ways you know repentance is real and true is that restitution is made. What will he do? Verse 28, fast forwards 12 months. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So in scripture, when there's a king walking on the roof of his palace, does it usually go well? I think David and Bathsheba, typically not. Uh, here's the deal, 12 months goes by, and if you're in this circumstance and some prophet gives you a vision, and, or you have a vision and it gives you an interpretation 12 months ago, you're like, ah, God's probably over it now. After all, I'm Nebuchadnezzar. And, and this is what I think is really important, is that when you are living in rebellion, what you consider God's ambivalence, he stopped caring about it, is really just his mercy. That's all it is. So Nebuchadnezzar 
goes on in his life. God doesn't care anymore. God's over that. I'm on to bigger, better things. Anyways, like I'm Nebuchadnezzar. But meanwhile, God, not for one moment, has stopped caring about this issue. And God has put a timer on Nebuchadnezzar's body on this punishment. And that, that timer was about 12 months. And God decided that the moment Nebuchadnezzar was about to say what he's about to say, that God was going to intervene immediately because God never stopped caring about the weight of his sin. He wanted to see Nebuchadnezzar humbled and worship the one true God. So here's what happens. He's on the top of his roof, verse 30. The king answered and said, by the way, we have no idea who he's talking to. Likely, he's talking to himself. How great are you, King Nebuchadnezzar? Let me tell you how great I am. And that's probably who he's answering. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built for my mighty power, by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Okay. God opposes the proud. This is one of my favorite verses. While the words were still in the king's mouth. Yes, there fell a voice from heaven. I imagine condescension in God's tone. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time, seven years shall pass over you until you know the most high rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. God requires, if Nebuchadnezzar is going to get saved, he has to believe in one monotheistic, the most high God, and he must believe that that God rules and reigns, gives it to him every once, he needs humility in him. God will not settle for anything less than Nebuchadnezzar worshiping him, him alone, in a spirit of humility. I don't know about you, but it feels impossible. Verse 33, immediately the word is fulfilled, against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. Seven years, here's my question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? There's probably likely one realistic answer, and that man's name is Daniel. Seven years. The kingdom is actually preserved, waiting for Nebuchadnezzar. I believe if anybody else took leadership over, they would have taken control, They would have killed Nebuchadnezzar, done something crazy. It seems that somebody like Daniel, I believe it was Daniel, came in, preserved this kingdom for seven years. Imagine Daniel, 15 years old, taken as a slave, his family killed, brought 900 miles to the east, finds himself in Nebuchadnezzar's court, now 50-some years old. He is sitting in the court plausibly with, with the ability to rule over the entire known world. How funny is God? I think he just has a great sense of humor. So I want to answer four questions. Number one, did Neb get saved? Was this enough to chop down the tree? Is this humbling, humiliating, publicly shaming experience enough to truly bring King Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in salvation? Is his heart truly gonna be humbled by this? And I wanna give you the answer. The answer, I believe, is without a shadow of a doubt, absolutely. You're gonna die. You're gonna go to heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar is gonna be there. And I've got a lot of questions for this guy. But I wanna give you 35 reasons why Nebuchadnezzar is going to heaven. I'm just kidding. It's seven reasons Why? But before I do that, if this story had ended in any other way, I would be very angry. I'd be very upset. I'd be very frustrated preacher right now. Uh, 1978, Superman, the original movie, okay? How many of you have actually seen the original movie, okay? Most frustrating ending ever. So stupid, okay? Superman wins. He always wins. That's what he does, right? Uh, So 
Well, did he win in the Batman one? Don't tell me that. I haven't seen that. Okay, so Superman finds himself, and there's Lois Lane, dead. And he screams, no! He flies. And he gets into space, and he hears this voice. I forget who it is. Somebody important in his life. This voice talks to him and basically reminds him, you can alter history. So here's what Superman does, okay? Superman decides to fly the opposite direction of the rotation of the Earth. True story. Actually happened. <laughs> so the rotation of the Earth, you're watching him. It goes fast, 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 right? And the Earth just comes to a screeching halt, and it starts to turn the other direction. And then all of a sudden, he stops, and as the, church, as the world turns in the other direction, then he comes back into real life. He brought time back, like 30 minutes, and there was Lois in his car before she even dies, and he takes her, and they live happily ever after. Everybody's happy, clappy, right? Okay. I wasn't born in 1978, but I'm pretty sure science still existed, okay? What would happen if all of a sudden the world moving at like tens of thousands of miles an hour just stopped? <laughs> you know, like, oh, we're going everywhere, water, everywhere. I mean, it would be the craziest experience ever, but apparently Superman is so magnanimous and powerful that he's able to just control all of humanity, stop the rotation of the earth, and not have us all just fly off and have all the oceans fly into crazy whatever. So uh, if... That movie, you get to the end of it, and you're like, what a waste of my life, right? If this story ended in any other way than Nebuchadnezzar getting saved, I would have been very frustrated and be like, why, why even put this thing in here So just so we can know that you didn't, you didn't win God, right? Is this it? Anyways, so this is a way better ending than Nebuchadnezzar dying and going to hell. Uh, number one, Nebuchadnezzar, his worship changes. He now, when he talks about God, he worships God in the singular, What's interesting is that this chapter begins and it ends with praise and worship from Nebuchadnezzar to Yahweh, and it's the beginning and the end that articulate the Most High God. Nebuchadnezzar, from his own heart, is not speaking to God with the same vernacular terms he used for God, plural, and he now speaks to him out of a monotheistic perspective. And you might be saying, <clears throat> Michael, that's not enough to really prove it to me. Okay, number two, Nebuchadnezzar, was given the incredible privilege to take his pen and actually write scripture. Look at verse four, chapter one. Who is authoring chapter four? Nebuchadnezzar. Who authored the rest of Daniel? Daniel. Imagine at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, Daniel and him are having coffee at Starbucks, and Daniel says, I'm recording for all of Babylon and for all the Jews and for the entire known world the very words of God. And I'm writing your story, but I feel like, I just feel like nobody knows this like you. Would you write it for me? And so Nebuchadnezzar takes the pen, and how does he start off his, his story, his testimony? This is his testimony of coming to faith in, in God. He starts it off with praise. And then he tells his testimony, and then he finishes it with praise. Isn't this cool? And in the middle of the story, he's actually bringing you into his state of mind and what he was feeling, what he was thinking, and what he was saying. It was just a really amazing Amazing thing to watch and an amazing story to read. If you had one chapter of scripture, if Daniel or somebody else came to you and said, one chapter, what do you want to say? Well, here's the suggestion. Start with worship, smack in the middle, put your testimony and end with worship and praise to God. Like that's a great way to do it. Number three or four, I'm sorry. He uses this platform. Uh, which one am I on? Four, good. He uses his platform to evangelize. He sits down and he writes it and he writes this in the language, the common language, Aramaic of the Babylonian tradespeople. 
And he writes this down, and from beginning to the end of the chapter, here's what you see. Who's the victor? It's Yahweh. And who's the villain? It's Nebuchadnezzar. And he takes this moment to immortalize his story and give all glory and honor and praise and worship to the one true monotheistic God, Yahweh. Not only that, number five, Neb was broken. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He's literally publicly making known, I was full of pride and God has had to humble me. And when you are prideful, guess what? Everyone around you knows it. And when you find yourself being convicted of pride, you're probably gonna have to make some kind of public repentance because pride is typically a very public thing that affects a lot of people. Number six, he praises the God who broke him. Look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. This king of heaven humiliated him for seven years. This dude ate grass, looked like insane man, was not able to think rightly, lived out in the elements, probably battled animals and dangers. And this guy has the audacity to get on his face before Yahweh and worship him. Let me tell you, the, let me tell you one of the ways that you can know your salvation is real. Uh, you can know your salvation is real when distress and tragedy and trials and difficulty, unlike anything else most people have to go through, enters your life. And at the end of this, you don't wag your finger at God and say, if you were good, you would have. If you loved me, you would have. Uh, you actually worship. People who don't have the spirit of God, yes, they end up at the end of the day wagging their finger at God. And people who do have the spirit of God wrestle through it, struggle with it, ask God hard questions, get frustrated. But their trial, their distress, their pain ends in worship. Nebuchadnezzar goes through all of this. He worships God. And even in the middle of it, look at verse 37 again. It says this, and that he said he was right in all of his ways. That he could look at God and say, you were right to put me through this trial. You were right to publicly shame me. You were right to allow, ordain, or permit this. We know God ordained this. Finally, number seven, he even repents for renaming Daniel. So do you remember how when the book starts, Daniel gets a pagan name? They're trying to erase Daniel's Jewishness. Remember that? So in this book, look at these just two one-liners. This is meant to be really meaningful if you just stop for a moment and read this text. It says, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar. And then in verse 19 again, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. So it's interesting when the quotes are happening, when Nebuchadnezzar is quoting the events, he refers to Daniel as Belteshazzar. When he's telling the story of before he was humbled, that's how he talks. But when, when Nebuchadnezzar writes in his current state, what does he call Daniel? Daniel. He actually repents and calls him his Jewish name, his real identity. I love that. Seven reasons. I had about 30 of them and I figured I wouldn't overwhelm you. These would be seven ones that should do the deal for you. But if uh, for some reason uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't trust in uh, Yahweh for real, Daniel didn't publish this book until after he died. And it would be really foolish to, for Daniel to publish Daniel chapter four if Nebuchadnezzar just reverted back to his evil sinful ways. Daniel didn't publish all of this stuff until way after he was dead. I wanna ask a question. Number two, why does God hate pride so much. Like, do you ever look at this and you're like, okay, it's pride. It's just this. Like, you, it's just blank. You fill it in, right? I want to give you an analogy that I think will help you maybe understand a little bit of why God hates pride so much. Um, why do you hate when your husband or your son 
or your grandson looks at pornography. Think about that. Think about how angry that makes you. I'll tell you why. It is a lie. It corrupts. It goes deep. It affects everyone around him. It numbs him. It wounds others. It breaks relationships. It's a spiral. It takes control so we are not self-controlled. We're not designed by our creator to let it in. And the net effect of pride is the same as porn. That's why God hates it. So now culture numbs us to pride, right? But we're not numb yet to porn as a culture. We understand by and large it's dangerous. So take all the emotions you have over that and now apply it to pride and you're beginning to understand why God so hates pride. It is a lie that goes deep and corrupts. It corrupts you and your relationships and it changes everything. But can God heal from both? The answer absolutely is yes. Does God need to cut me down to size? Probably. <laughs> Does God need to publicly shame me? I pray he doesn't. Here's, here's what I know. Um, I have watched many men, I've watched many men in ministry, very close to me, tank their ministries. And every one of them had, had an option. Every one of them could choose their adventure. Every one of them could choose pride. I'll think more highly of myself than I ought to. God doesn't care. I'll get away from this. I'm smarter than God is apparently. Or they could choose humility. And I have watched so many people walk down this path. And I've watched so many people humble themselves as well. I've watched so many people who have been on the precipice of some major sins, change direction, humble their hearts, and be spared from the public shaming and discipline of God. And so this is what I, what, I, what I love about this point is that uh, does God need to chop me down as a divine lumberjack? That's up to you. This is one of the greatest parts of this story is that you actually now have a decision to make. Will I walk down the path of pride and say, I know better, I'm smarter than God, I don't like God's word, I don't like what it says, I'll do this how I want, look how awesome I am, look how great I am, look at what I've built. It takes so many different, um, it looks like so many different ways, but or... You can say, I am not going to test the Lord God because I know that everything he's asking me to do is for his glory and my deepest joy and satisfaction. And so if you're a believer in this room, you have, this is what I say to my children when they sin, by the way. I look at them and I say, have you trusted in Jesus? And they say, yes. Okay, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they say, yes. And then I tell them, well, then you have self-control. You now have admitted to me, you are not a slave to anything. You can choose humility or you can choose pride. You know when like a kid gets their feelings hurt, but it's not about anything real and they're just mad and they're choosing to be mad, right? I stop them in that moment. Have you trusted in Jesus? Yes. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Then it's your choice. You, you can pick whichever path you want to go. I cannot make you choose the humble route. I, do you want to be miserable? Walk here. Do you want to be happy? Walk here. Do you want to be frustrated? Walk this far. I get to a point, actually, kid, where I think you want to be frustrated. You know what? Adults, we're just big kids, aren't we? We're just big kids with harder hearts, which means God's got to soften us and bring a bunch of humility. I tell you, God has given us the option. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, forget about every other thing we're talking about for a moment. I want to boil, boil it down to the most basic reality for you. The first decision of humility that you make is trusting in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you why this is a humble decision. Because for your entire life, you have resisted him or not believed in him or not given him your life. 
For your entire life, you have been in control or believed you had the perception of control. You determined truth. You determined reality. And this is why coming to Jesus is one of the most humbling acts you will ever do. Because when you come to Jesus, you reject all the cultural lies and you realize I am not good but broken. But I am infinitely valuable and I am loved by God. I no longer determine truth. God reveals truth for me. I no longer get to choose what is best for my life. I go to God's word and he tells me what is good and best and right and I believe him and I trust him. I am no longer gonna rely on my own good works and good behavior to accrue enough merit to get me into heaven. What I'm gonna do is trust in what Jesus did on the cross for my sins because I am not able to make myself right with God on my own. And so this is one of the greatest acts of humility. I'm going to acknowledge and believe that Jesus is God and I am not. I am infinitely loved by God, but broken by sin. And he has told me how my relationship with him can be made right again. It is one of the greatest acts of humility. And so before we talk about anything else for non-Christians, the first aspect, the first next step in humbling yourself is to come under the lordship of Jesus, repent of your sins and believe in him. This is it. I believe Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead and he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Every knee is gonna bow. Nebuchadnezzar would have bowed eventually, whether it was in this life or after his death. But God wanted to bring Nebuchadnezzar to a point, this prideful man, before his death. I believe so that we all for generations and centuries and millennia could look back and be reminded, if God can chop down Nebuchadnezzar's pride, can he not chop down fill in the blank? Unfortunately, as we've talked about before last week and again this morning, the height of public humiliation often corresponds to the height of the person's pride. My suggestion for you, if I could be so bold, would be to say this. Humble yourselves so you can experience the grace of God rather than resisting and persisting in your pride and experiencing the opposition of God. Amen, Village Church?